So there was a sermon I was listening to this past week as I was, uh, I was just going about my day, and, and it, it just so happened that one of my favorite preachers was um, doing just a one-week sermon, and he was in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I thought, well, that's, that's really great because I'm in Ecclesiastes, and he told this story uh, in the middle of his sermon, and it struck me as so beautiful, and I just want to share it with you this morning as we get started. And, and so he told about a woman that went to his church, and, and she had been trying to share the love of God with her father for many, many years, and they had read books by Christian authors together, they'd gone to conferences together, and he'd even come to church every week with her. And, and they would have conversations, and he just kept saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I just, I just, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. Well, uh, one week he was having a routine operation. It was going to be, uh, it was going to be an overnight stay for recovery from his surgery. And so, uh, um, after surgery, they were, they were in the hospital and she just started reading the Bible to them. They read the Bible together pretty regularly, but uh, she opened up to the book of Ecclesiastes and she started reading. And they just kept reading together. And she looked up towards the end of chapter 2 and was startled to see that he appeared to be choked up. Well, she kept reading. And at the end of chapter 3, she noticed that her dad was, was weeping. He had tears in his eyes and he couldn't, couldn't quite get his sentence out the way that he wanted. And she said, Dad, are you okay? And she worried that maybe there was some sort of a, a complication, that he had some pain from his procedure. Dad, are you okay? And he said, I get it now. I get it now. I need Jesus. I get it now. And he just kept saying, I get it now. The book of Ecclesiastes is a powerful book. It's a powerful book. And at the same time, it is really simple. It's a really simple book. Here's, here's Ecclesiastes. There's this man named Solomon, and he decides to do an experiment. He wants to discover where a person can find meaning in life. He wants to know where you can find meaning. He wants to do something meaningful. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody want to do anything meaningful? I don't either. I was just speaking in generalities. Yeah. Everybody I know wants to live a meaningful life. Everybody I know wants to do something that matters. Everybody wants to make a difference, change a life, be important to somebody. We all want that. And the most obvious place to start is at work. If we think about wanting to do something meaningful, we think about work. It's an easy place to start. We spend a lot of our time there. A significant portion of our life. We work hard. We make friends there. We dream there. Hopefully we don't actually dream, otherwise you might not do something significant at work. Uh, we spend a lot of time at work, and it's easy to imagine that we will find meaning if we can just advance at work. And that's true no matter what you do. No matter what you do, we think that we can find meaning if we just work a little harder, if we just do a little better, if we just advance a little bit. If you're a waiter or a waitress, maybe the career trajectory is this. 
Uh, I'm going to be promoted to head waiter, then shift manager, then assistant manager, then store manager, then I'll be doing something meaningful. Or if you work in an office, first I'll get this promotion, then I'll get my boss's job, then I'll sit in on board meetings, and then I'll become the chief financial officer, then I'll be doing something meaningful. Or maybe you work on a farm. First, I want to buy this property that's right next to mine. Then I'm going to get this property over here. And then if I can just get a 1,000 acres to farm, everything's going to be meaningful. And then, well, if I can just have an operation like Kip Tom, then I'll have a meaningful operation. I'll be doing something meaningful. By the way, preachers aren't immune to this either. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Bob Russell? Anybody ever heard of Bob Russell? Well, Bob Russell... Uh, helped this church in Louisville, a little church you may have heard of. It's called Southeast. Um, he helped this church grow from, I don't know, 120 or so people into 20,000 people. Now, guess what every preacher in America wants to do, right? They want to have Southeast 2.0, right? So, uh, and we say to ourselves, well, if I can just help this church grow to be gargantuan, then I'll be doing something meaningful, then I'll have meaning. Now, let's do this. Let's do this. None of those things that I said are bad. Okay? It's, it's not bad to have aspirations to move up at work. It's not bad to want a promotion. It's not bad to want to expand your farming operation. It's not bad to want a church to grow. None of those things are bad. It isn't wrong to want to be successful. It isn't wrong if we want to be successful, okay? You'll find that on your outline there. It isn't wrong if we want to be successful. It is wrong when we try and find our meaning there. It is wrong when we try and find our meaning there. When we say the reason I exist is to get this promotion, the reason I exist is to expand my farming operation, the reason that I exist is to become the CFO of my company, the reason that I exist is for this church to grow to be Southeast 2.0. If we try and find our meaning in success, then we're in trouble. Let me explain why. This guy Solomon This man who's doing this experiment on himself to find meaning, I want to show you what he had to say, and then we're going to unpack it together. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. Solomon, again, he's been trying to find meaning in all these different things, this grand experiment on his own life. He says, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any other king who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire, so I became greater than all those who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I'd take it. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors, but as I looked at everything I'd worked hard for to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. 
Solomon's saying here, there's a real easy way to wreck your life, and it's to let success consume you. If you want to wreck your life, let success consume you. Success isn't bad. Success isn't bad. There's a, there's a lot of really successful Christian people. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being driven. Nothing wrong with those type A personalities in the room. Nothing wrong with being ready to conquer the next hill. But there is a problem with saying, I'm going to take that hill, and when I do, that's going to be the most meaningful thing that I do in my life. That's what people will remember me for. When I take this hill, when I get this promotion, when my farming operation expands, when the church grows, that will be my legacy. When that's the attitude in our heart and in our mind, that's when we start to have a problem, okay? When our meaning comes from our success, we're in dangerous ground. Because you know what you see when you take that next hill? You know what you see when you take that hill? You see another hill. You see something else that you've got to conquer, and it never, ever ends, Whatever it is, you'll find something else that needs to be done next, and it'll become an obsession. Solomon was a king, and he was pretty successful as a king. What, what do you think makes a person successful as a king? Just interact with me a little bit. What do you think makes a person successful as a king? Prosperity, yeah. Solomon, I, I think the text said he acquired lots of gold and silver, more than anybody else who had preceded him. The silver and gold of many kingdoms. What makes a person successful as a king? Leadership. Their leadership. Solomon seems like he's a pretty good leader. He accomplished a fair bit in his lifetime. He did a little thing called rebuilding the temple. Kind of a big deal in Israel, right? What, what makes a person successful as a king? Power. Solomon had it. He conquered other nations. The ability to do things, right? The, the, the things that you accomplish. You might say, um, well, we, you, you've given several pretty good examples, but let me, give you, let me give you how Solomon sums up his tenure as king. Verse 9, so I became greater than all those who had lived in Jerusalem before me. Sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? If you can say that, you're doing pretty well as king. I was greater than all those who had lived before me. Solomon did it all as a king. He built huge homes for himself. A lot of us might say, well, I'd be, I'd be pretty pleased if I just had one home. Uh, Solomon uh, had vast wealth and gold and silver. I might be all right if I just got my 401k in fight and shape, you know? Uh, Solomon had power. Some of us, you know, I'd, I'd just be, I'd be content with a little bit of influence in some area of my life, but Solomon had it all. It's interesting to me, though, that one of the things that he spends the most time describing is his garden. You know, it's that he spends a lot of time describing his garden. So, what Solomon's really doing here is he's kind of given his kingly resume. You know, this is, this is what I have accomplished as a king. This is my resume as a king. And one of the things that he spends the most time talking about is his garden. So imagine if you wanted to hire somebody, and you're in an interview, and you're sitting down with them, and you say, hey, why do you think you'd be a good fit here? Why do you think you'd be a good fit at Mount Tabor? 
And the person says, well, I, I got to tell you, I'm just really excited about the way my hydrangeas turned out this year. They are beautiful. This nice, deep blue hue. They have really flourished, and I'm pretty excited about the way my roses are looking. That's, that's great. I love hydrangeas as much as the next guy, but that doesn't have anything to do with me hiring you or not. And, and Solomon is spending a lot of time talking about his hydrangeas. Look at this. He said, I also found meaning in building huge homes, tried to find meaning in building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens. I made parks. I filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. What's he talking about his hydrangeas? I don't care about your hydrangeas. But as I began studying, I found that this horticultural success that Solomon has was really indicative of an amazing achievement. Here's what I mean. If you had to pick one of these four words to describe Israel, what would you choose? Would you choose A, rainforest? Wait, hold on, hold on, let me give you all the answers. This is how game show works. You guys know this. Okay, Israel is A, rainforest, B, tundra, C, desert, or D, Midwest farmland? C, desert, final answer? Anybody want to phone a friend? Yeah, it's a desert. Israel's a desert. And you know what you're not planning to find in the middle of the desert? Flourishing gardens. Why? Because it's a desert. Here's what Solomon's saying. You other kings, you talk about conquering kingdoms and taking land. That's a trivial matter for me. That's easy. I do that on my weekdays. I do that, I do that before I have my breakfast. I am so adept at conquering nations that I have set my sights on conquering the desert and turning it green. What Solomon's saying is I conquer foreign lands and I conquer desert lands. Conquering nations is too easy. I want to change the way the world works. Solomon was consumed with success, and all of the traditional metrics for success were inadequate to describe his power. He's saying, you other petty kings, you worry about silly little matters like conquering kingdoms. That's too easy. I want to conquer the land. Solomon was consumed with success. He took it to the max in every way imaginable. He conquered lands. He conquered the land. He built homes. He filled them with all the trappings of his wealth. And here's what he had to say about all of his success. Anything I wanted, I'd take it. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work. It was a reward for all my labors. He found pleasure in all of his success. But there's a problem with pleasure. There's a problem with pleasure. It's called the hedonistic paradox. And here's what it says. The more you pursue pleasure, the less pleasure you're able to experience. The more you pursue pleasure, the less pleasure you're able to experience. We've all, we've all dealt with the hedonistic paradox in some way. How many of you like dessert? Let me show of hands. How many of you like dessert? Some of you are raising your hands and some of you are lying. What's your favorite dessert? Pecan pie, truly the word of the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Mike likes pecan pie. What, what's your favorite dessert? Persimmon pudding, a very southern Indiana answer. Jerry and Gloria gave me my first taste of persimmon pudding, and I'm thankful to them for that. Uh, what, what, what desserts do you like? Ice cream, lemon cream cake. How about chocolate chip cookies? Any love in here for chocolate chip cookies? 
Amen. Now, you guys have all had a chocolate chip cookie before, I'm sure. First one, first one is pretty great, isn't it? It goes down easy. How's the second one? <laughs> Dan says better. <laughs> this is the leadership that we have in Montabur. He's a good man, right? The second one's pretty good. Here's what I found. The third one doesn't go down so easy. The third one doesn't go down so easy. You're starting to get a little bit of a, a sugar rush going on. And, and the fourth one, right? you've got chocolate smeared all over your face. You're a little ashamed to see what other people are seeing, right? You get the fifth one, you've got to sneak it, right? You say to the rest of the people at the party, I've got to go to the bathroom. You know? And, and so you sneak it. And here's what I found, that that fifth chocolate chip cookie doesn't really taste all that good. Right? The, the amount of pleasure that you're able to experience has diminished dramatically. The first one is fantastic. The second one's pretty good. The third one's okay. The fourth one's a mistake. And the fifth one is just a bad life choice. Right? That's the hedonistic paradox. The more you pursue pleasure, the less you're able to experience it. Tom Brady. <laughs> Everybody looked up. There's not strong opinions in this place about that name either. Tom Brady is not a popular name in southern Indiana. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is, okay, I'm just going to be real with you this morning. You, you don't have to love him, but you probably should respect him. He's a fantastic quarterback. Uh, I'm comfortable calling him the, the best to ever play that position. If you're not, okay, he's probably in your top three, okay? He should be. Uh, after his third Super Bowl victory, he was being interviewed by 60 Minutes, and here's what he had to say. He had this troubled look on his face. He just won his third Super Bowl ring, but he had his, his troubled look on his face, and he said, why do I have these three Super Bowl rings, and I just, I still feel like there's something more, something greater out there for me. Maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. This is awesome. But he said, me, I think, God, there's, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more than this. The interviewer said, what's the answer? And you know that, that voice that people have when they're trying to hold back tears and they just kind of got to croak it out? Tom Brady answered in this voice and, and, and he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Tom Brady is one of the most successful athletes to ever live He's achieved an incredible level of success on and off the field, but he's learned the same thing that Solomon learned all those years ago. As I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. There's nothing really worthwhile anywhere. I don't have a problem with success. I don't have a problem with success at all. I, in fact, I love to work hard. I love putting my mind to something and seeing it come to life. I don't have a problem with success. I do have a problem when somebody says my goal in life is success. Because when you get there, you'll respond the same way Tom Brady said. You'll say, that's all there is. There's got to be more than that. There's got to be more than that, right? And when we're disappointed by the things we've devoted ourselves to, it is devastating when we're disappointed by the things that we've devoted ourselves to, it is absolutely 
devastating. Everything we knew is certain is gone. Everything we relied on for meaning and worth in life is gone. All of the things that we've worked so hard for, they just don't seem to matter. And the only thing that you have left is just this empty feeling in the pit of your stomach. I don't want you to be disappointed by the things that you devote yourself to. I don't want that for you because it's painful and I've seen it hurt many people. So what's the alternative? If we don't put our hope in success, where do we put our hope? If we're not gonna put our hope in the thing that we do for a living and the success that we find, where do we put our hope? I begin to answer that question by getting just a little bit more depressing this morning, if you'd allow me that privilege. Uh, chapter 2, picking it up in verse 12. As Solomon again, he said, So I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness. For who can do this better than I, the king? I thought, wisdom is definitely better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise can see where they're going, but fools walk in the dark. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both will die. Both of them are going to die. Welcome to church where we're planning to confront you with your own mortality today. But, but listen, you, you know who's going to die one day? Successful people. Unsuccessful people. Poor people. Rich people. Strong people. Weak people, short people, tall people, unpopular people, popular people, heavy people, skinny people, funny people, serious people, people who have a good sense of style, and people who dress weird. Americans, Mexicans, Germans, Brits, Canadians, Brazilians, Japanese, Chinese, Afghanis, Pakistanis, Iraqis, Indians, South Africans, Nigerians, Moroccans, Senegalese, Algerians, Ethiopians, Australians, Russians, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Zoroastrians, Hindus, Atheists, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Communists, Socialists, Anarchists, Liberals, Conservatives, and everyone in between. You are going to die one day. No amount of success you attain at whatever it is you do is going to change that fact. But I have some advice for you. Instead of putting your hope in success or wealth or pleasure or even national identity, I challenge you, instead of doing any of those things, put your hope in the one who conquered death. Put your hope in the one who conquered death. His name is Jesus. I submit to you this morning that that's where your hope belongs. Now, I know that if you've spent time in church before, you've heard that language. If you've been to church, or maybe you're, you're uncomfortable with church, you're, you're new to church, maybe you've been to church uh, one or two times, you've heard language before that maybe you found a little bit confusing. You've heard somebody say something like, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And what we all do when we hear that statement is we nod significantly, right? We go, yeah, you're right. Jesus did die on the cross for my sins. But I know from experience that some of us, when we nod significantly, what we really mean is, I don't have a clue what that means, but it seems important to everybody else, so I'm just going to nod. I know because I've nodded significantly as somebody said a sentence like that, so I want to spend a little bit of time telling you what that means. I'd like to tell you. So go ahead and put that, that sentence back up there for me. 
Okay? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Let's, let's parse that out a little bit, okay? Um, first of all, we're going to start with a question. What did Jesus die for, according to that sentence? My sins. My sins. Maybe we'll generalize it a little bit more because I'm not just saying it about me. Jesus died for our sins, okay? Jesus died for our sins. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Because when when we think about sins, we think about little white lies. We think about uh, somebody that that shouldn't have done something that they did, but as long as you don't murder somebody, then we're probably going to be okay. That's the way that we think about sin. And so we think, man, that seems like a really, really disproportional reaction. I told a little white lie, and so Jesus had to die? Why, Why is that? The truth is God doesn't look at sin the same way we do. He doesn't have the same experience with sin that we do. Because all of us are sinners. We've all sinned. We're, we're all understanding of what it is to sin. But God doesn't understand what it's like to sin. God's not able to have that perspective. So when God is considering sin, he doesn't ask, well, what kind of sin did you commit? Was it a big deal sin or just a little tiny sin? God doesn't ask that question. The only question he asks when considering sin is, did you sin? Yes or no? That's it. So I want to I give you an analogy that I think might put sin into perspective a little bit for us. And, and we'll talk about it in terms of rebellion. When we sin, we rebel against God. You think rebellion's a big deal? I submit to you that 56 men signed a document and they sent it to King George in England. They committed an act of rebellion. They committed an act of rebellion against the British monarchy. We call that letter the Declaration of Independence. Sending that letter was an act of war. It was an act of rebellion against the British Empire. And while King George prepared for war, he wasn't going to interview the rebels and say, well, what kind of rebellious acts did you commit? It was a war, and the enemy of the crown is a dead man. Sin is rebellion against God. And when we sin, we send a declaration of independence to God, saying, I don't need you. I don't want you. And God responds by saying, Okay, have it your way. The Bible describes it this way, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us have sent our declaration of independence to God. And sin is serious. It's more serious than we take it. See, if the British had won the Revolutionary War, you know what would have happened to those 56 men? They would have been killed as traitors. The same is true when it comes to sin. The Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. Sin is serious business. We need to treat it that way. Sin is serious business. We need to treat it that way. So when we we say, I don't understand why Jesus had to die for my sins, I do. Because I rebelled against a holy God. I sent a declaration of independence to him saying, I don't need you. 
But while I was in the heart of my rebellion, while I was moving as far away from God as possible, while the whole creation rejected God, God showed his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. While we were yet rebels, while we were acting in rebellion, God sent Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience, free from rebellion, so that his life might be, might be a substitute for ours. And he might give his life for ours. Jesus didn't rebel, but he paid the cost of rebellion so that those who have might be restored to God. That's where it starts. Some people say, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I like to say it this way. Jesus died that I might live. I don't deserve to live because I have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. But Jesus died for me. Jesus died that I might live and that you might live. That's where it starts, but I want to remind you that Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. After three days, he came out of his grave. After three days, he came out of his grave. Uh, By the way, I might remind you, a grave that the most successful people in Jerusalem put him in. So take that for what it's worth. Success isn't everything. Death couldn't hold him. And so as we admit our rebellion and we ask him to forgive our sins, he will say yes. When we ask for God's forgiveness, we move from traitors awaiting our treasonous death to citizens of his kingdom, endowed with a new life. I don't have a problem with success. I really don't. I think it's a fine thing. But understand that success is nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus and following him with your whole life. So work hard. Work hard. Earn your promotion. Get a raise. But don't put your trust in that. Don't put your hope in that. Don't let success consume you. Put your hope in Jesus and follow him wherever he leads you. That's the only thing in this world that will ever satisfy you. We all understand what success looks like at work. It's a promotion, a raise, a new job, better benefits, new office, all that. But let me tell you what success looks like in the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you what success looks like when we follow Jesus. It's a word of encouragement from the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is success in the kingdom of heaven. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I'm after, and I hope that's what you're after too. Let's pray. God, we all do different things for a living. We all have aspirations and goals. We all have dreams, different things that we'd like to accomplish, and different things that we devote ourselves to. But God, today, I ask that you would give each of us the courage to devote ourselves first and foremost to you to your kingdom, to your glory, to praising your name with all of our lives. God, we're not going to be perfect at it. So when we fail, we ask that you forgive us and show us your grace. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.